welcome and thank you for joining us for this amazing panel. My name is Mary Kelly and it is my pleasure to be hosting this event, which is part of the Local Authors Celebration Month, a month-long celebration of local artists and writers who are contributing their talents to the literary community. And make sure to catch all of our events on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And to all of our writers out there, make sure to sign up for the Pacific Northwest Authors Panel on how to self-publish. That panel will be held on Thursday, August 27th at 7 p.m. This panel will be focusing on Lovecraftian horror and weird fiction. For those of you that don't know what Lovecraftian-style horror is, this style usually includes cosmic horror with supernatural, pre-human, or extraterrestrial elements. It generally presupposes that the unknown is far more terrifying than the known, and that ordinary life is a thin shell over a reality that is so alien and abstract in comparison that merely contemplating it would damage the sanity of the ordinary person. Many authors and directors have been influenced by this style, and these artists include Stephen King, John Carpenter, H.R. Geiger, Mike Magnolia, Charles Strauss, Robert E. Howard, Bob Eggleton, and many more. You may have been watching this kind of horror and not even realizing it. Stephen King's It, The Mist, John Carpenter's The Thing, Mike Magnolia's Hellboy, Netflix's Stranger Things, Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, Echevarri and Beecham's Carnival Row on Amazon, and recently Jordan Peele's brilliant take on Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country on HBO, which premiered this last weekend. It is my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Gwen Callahan, co-director of the Portland Horror Film Festival and Portland's very own H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, um, which is currently in its 26th year. Um, 25th. 25th? 25th year. That's pretty long. I believe we're the longest running Lovecraft Film Festival. Um, Gwen will run through some questions with our panelists, and there will be a Q&A during the last 15 minutes or so. Please reserve your questions until then, and you'll notice that there's a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And now I'd like to introduce some panelists. Um, first up is Wendy Wagner, po whose uh, poetry and short fiction has appeared in over 40 venues. Her third novel, An Oath of Dogs, a sci-fi thriller was released July 2017 from Angry Robot. She is the managing senior editor of both Lightspeed Magazine and Nightmare Magazine and will soon step up as editor-in-chief of Nightmare and served as the guest editor of Queers Destroy Horror. She was also the nonfiction editor of both Women Destroy Science Fiction and Women Destroy Fantasy. Next, we have Cody Goodfellow, who has written eight novels and co-wrote three more with New York Times bestselling author John Skip. His first two collections, Silent Weapons for Quiet Wars and All Monster Action, each received the Wonderland Book Award. He wrote, co-produced, and scored the short Lovecraftian films Stay at Home, Dad, and Baby Got Bass, which may be viewed on YouTube. As an actor, he has appeared in numerous short films, TV shows, music videos, and commercials, and he is also a co-founder of Perilous Press, an occasional micro-publisher of modern cosmic horror. Next, we have Michael Griffin, writer of Weird Unsettling Stories, electronic ambient musician, and founder of Hypnos Recordings. Michael Griffin's stories have appeared in magazines like Apex, Black Static, Lovecraft Ezine, and Strange Eons, my personal favorite, and such anthologies as the Shirley Jackson Award winner, The Grim Scribes Puppets, the Laird Tribute to Children of Old Leech, and Cthulhu Photogen. And finally, Christine Morgan, whose short stories have appeared in dozens of anthologies as well as collections. The Raven's Table, Viking-themed horror with a companion volume due out in late 2020 or early 2021, and Dawn of the Living Impaired and other messed up zombie stories. 
The Hillsborough Public Library is so grateful to these creators for sharing their talents and stories with us today, and we hope everybody enjoys this delve into creating and publishing horror fiction, and that aspiring horror writers have something to look forward to and get inspired. I will now turn it over to Gwen and the panel. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> awesome, and thanks to the Hillsbury Public Library for having us having us in their local author series. As Mary said, I'm Gwen Callahan. I am one of the co-directors of the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. My husband Brian and I took it o- took it over from the founder Andrew Migliori um, about ten years ago, I believe. I think this is like our tenth festival. Um, it was 2011 was our the first time running it. Um, this year is indeed the 25th anniversary of the festival, which is the largest and longest running Lovecraft cosmic horror weird tale film festival in the country and maybe the world. Um, so I'm very excited to be talking with these with these four awesome authors who have appeared also at the festival in our literary tracks. Um, and I just want to start off by kind of, let's just talk about the elephant in the room with um, Jordan Peele's Lovecraft Country. You probably have seen all these articles popping up about um, Lovecraft and his racist views and things like that. And I just want to address really quickly because this panel is not about that but just to to address that a little bit um to begin with that yes we we recognize and we know from his letters and his and some of his stories that he had racist views and um there's been many words to describe his his racism and i've seen like he was a vicious racist and a viral virulent racist and a violent racist and I don't know about all that, but like, yes, he had he had some racist views um, and that seeped into his stories. My view is that like I can recognize that he is an important literary figure um, who really bridged that uh, genre gap between the gothic horror literature of Edgar Allan Poe and M.R. James and Robert Chambers and kind of incorporated a more modern and science fiction angle to horror and brought it into the modern age. And as such influenced um, so many horror authors and and authors in general um, with, with his, with this new brand of horror. I just wanted to get each of your thoughts a little bit on, um, you know, how you came to Lovecraft and how we can all reconcile this, like knowing that he was a racist and also knowing that he, made a really important contribution to uh, the literary history. Um, I I guess I'll just go in order. Uh, Cody Goodfellow, who is also, um, guys might recognize him from that Days In commercial (laughs) (laughs) as the farmer. And he can be found on CodyGoodfellow.com. He's also appeared in videos by Beck and Anthrax. Um, What are your quick thoughts about this? Well, it's, I mean, you know, the, the, conventional wisdom asks that you separate the, the art from the artist, but in this case, it's it's really impossible. Uh, there was a uh, French literary critic who wrote a, a, a fantastic book called Lovecraft Against the World Against Life, who uh, demonstrated that Lovecraft's sense of alienation and failure in the world is what led to his the, the, the breakthrough of his cosmicism in, in his uh, in his horror fiction. And so you can't really separate his uh, xenophobia, uh, his his absolute paralyzing fear of the opposite sex, and his uh, uh, a, a lot of his rancid race theory from his fiction. 
uh, or from the metaphor of the of the Cthulhu mythos. And so, I mean, this is something that everybody who, who finds his way and finds their way to Lovecraft uh, agonizes with. So often, uh, as I did, uh, authors or lovers of Lovecraft, I, you come across him uh, in your adolescent years, and it's a it's a period of extreme alienation. And so you you identify with the protagonists and the the victims in his stories who pay with their lives and their sanity for finding this glimpse of a higher reality. And and then inevitably you you start to realize how infected his uh, this brilliant literary can uh, uh, conceit, this kind of pulp existentialism, how how tied up it is with it, with racism. And whereas with previous generations of Lovecraftian authors who come since, uh, we're just simply trying to add to the canon, you know, come up with their own forbidden tome and their own great old ones. I You see so many uh, authors of our generation that are still wrestling with the very thorny question of this uh, really powerful metaphor and trying to separate the cosmicism from the, uh, from the racism and xenophobia. And, uh, it's, it, it, it's fascinating to watch as it, as it evolves, as it changes from being kind of a, uh, a very compelling, but a very anti-human, not just, not just racist, not just misogynist, but but uh, anti-human kind of uh, uh, philosophy and turning it around to something that, that we, where we're not, not the center of the universe, but uh, still something kind of beautiful and fantastic and worth celebrating in itself. <laughs> Thanks for that. that <laughs> no, that was great. Um, let's, let's hear from, from Christine Morgan. Um, so Christine, congratulations on winning the Splatterpunk Award for your novel, Lake House Infernal. Um, to, to folks who don't know Christine, she's a two-time cancer survivor who's also been lovingly referred to as the Martha Stewart of extreme horror for her penchant for making spooky crafts and also making delicious goodies that she brings to uh, various events and things. She can be found online at christinemariemorgan.wordpress.com and she's also on Facebook at Christine Morgan Author. Um, and see Morgan author on Twitter. So Christine, what are your what are your thoughts about this too? Well, I I got into reading horror as a kid, and but I never really read any Lovecraft until college. I was kind of aware of him through references in other works. I read a lot of Stephen King, and you know the cultural osmosis. He kind of picked things up. Then in, in college, um, I was part of the, uh, the, the, the college role-playing club, and a lot of the guys there were into Lovecraft, into Call of Cthulhu. So at, you know, I, I figured I would check it out and see, see what it was all about. And you know, I know it's heretical of me to say this, but I've been called out for heresy before for thinking chambers is better anyway. But... It never really, his writing never really spoke to me all that much. I, I could, I, and I wasn't sure if that was because, you know, as, as a girl, as a, a gamer girl growing up and then a woman, it, it, it just didn't resonate with me in the way it seemed to resonate with the guys in my peer group who were, for the most part, and I love you guys, 
you know, nerds. <laughs> they were they were the, the, the scrawny, pasty, you know, loner type nerds. And in Lovecraftian fiction, you see a lot of that being the protagonist, that being the hero. It's the the smart guy who saves the day, not the big tough man of action. So I was always kind of viewing it more from that outsider perspective. Um, as as for the the racism and xenophobia and elements of his personal life, uh, I was a psychology major and. I, I would guess he was a very unhappy, scared, miserable person in, in real life. And I kind of feel bad for him in that in that regard. But even so, that's no excuse to, you know, share it around so horribly so much. Is that, oh, we lost Gwen. Sorry, I muted myself because there was <laughs> ice crushing happening in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> um, Wendy Wagner, who's the incoming editor of Nightmare Magazine, um, so Wendy shared with me that she started started drinking lots of coffee at the age of eight. It doesn't seem to have stunted your growth, I'm happy to see. And you once ate a dozen powdered sugar donut holes in 35 seconds. What? Um, which is amazing. I would pay $20 to see that. <laughs> um, how, how long ago was that that you did that? Uh, well, uh, it was part of an event when I worked at the Children's Museum. And <laughs> we had Office Olympics. And, like, you know, the, the next person, like, to go in this rally uh, relay had to wait for me to eat these donuts. So I just, like, took all of them and stuck them in my face at one time. And... <laughs> powdered sugar was shooting out my nose and it was pretty great. I, I nearly choked to death, but it was worth it and delicious. Nice. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so gluttony is, is, uh, kind of brought me to horror, I think, because, you know, I, I loved stand by me. Um, with, with like, you know, the pie eating contest and like barfing and, um, that's not the name of the movie. You, you guys know it's River Phoenix. It's the kids. It's the oh, Stand by Me. Oh, good. Suddenly yeah, I was like, when, uh, I just blew the when, name. <laughs> it's when yeah. he's, um, when Will Wheaton's telling the story. Right, yeah. Camping, so. Yeah, so that, that immediately appealed to me because look at all that pie. How delicious. But yeah, I, you know, I didn't get into Lovecraft until I was a grown-up too. Uh, for some reason, I never found him at our library. And um, probably because in our library, they always put, like, the horror stuff in, like, the literary section. So I was probably just overlooked it because I was like, oh, that's probably about real things instead of, you know, creatures and monsters, which loaded up with. And I just missed out. But uh, when I did come to Lovecraft, it was, I'd started writing horror fiction. And I, I really wanted to read, um, you know, the, the canon. And I was like, what's the most important horror stuff I can read and you know it obviously Lovecraft came up in that and so I started reading it and um you know I grew up in southern Oregon in a very rural logging town and you know basically everybody I knew was an absolute racist um I mean maybe that's unfair of me to say that maybe I'm judging people by like my dad who's definitely, you know, terrible. Um, and so I guess I kind of grew up um, compartmentalizing people, like thinking, okay, they say this terrible thing, but also, you know, they can do good things too. And so I sort of 
you know, I just grew up being used to that. That was normal was um, it's just accepting that you had to kind of close your eyes on how terrible people could be about a lot of things, you know, all the time. And so for me, Lovecraft was, was like just another normal guy because I could see that he was pretty horrible, but I guess, you know, so were so many other people that I knew. But I felt so drawn to his work because of just that tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness that comes out in his work. And, you know, I was a very lonely kid. I Growing up in this small town with, you know, my, my mom was a real liberal and I was a tree hugger. And so I felt like, oh, yeah, this guy gets what it is to be a lonely, isolated, miserable nerd. And so for me, I was immediately drawn to Lovecraft tremendously because of that. And also because, I mean, I love stuff like, uh, you know, Indiana Jones and, you know, that like secret mumbo jumbo about like, you know, if you saw the Da Vinci Code or you read Foucault's Pendulum, all of that kind of stuff. I've always been like really drawn to secret mystical books and secret histories of the world. And so, you know, Lovecraft is really, really into that. And so for me, he was just so perfect. Um, and I feel like, you know, it's, you definitely, I, I imagine him just as Christine said, as just being this really miserable, lonely, broken person. And it's like, I'm glad I don't have to know him, uh, but I do feel like I have learned a lot from him and I can take a lot of delight from his work. Um, and I, I just hope that the things that I take from him, I can apply in a way that's less harmful, you know? Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Mike Griffin, who, whose latest book, Armageddon House, just came out a few months ago from Undertow Publications. And your Human Alchemy collection was the 2018 Shirley Jackson Award finalist. Um, and everyone, Mike, grew up about a mile from the Hillsbury Public Library as a kid. One of the few people that I know that's like a Portland native. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Two books, Griffin. <laughs> what? Um, have, we, have we answered the racism question enough or do, we, do I need to weigh on on that too? Um, we can we can move on if you're satisfied with Why did he get what's been said already. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's a question that's that's been answered and and, yeah. and the argument's sort of been won. And I'm not saying let's not talk about that anymore or, or it's not worth asking about. I'm just saying I feel like Lovecraft gets named because he's famous and it's sort of a shorthand for a kind of fiction. And when really when we say Lovecraftian horror, what we're talking about is a certain kind of cosmic horror that might encompass stuff that's maybe even just as much or more influenced by Algernon Blackwood or Arthur Mackin or Poe or M.R. James or Chambers or like a list of people. Mm -hmm. So um, that's not, I'm not trying to necessarily knock down Lovecraft, but I feel like it's, it's sort of a, it's like a marketing category more than it is that we're all a bunch of writers trying to be Lovecraft, really. I don't know any writers trying to be Lovecraft, well, that's not true, <laughs> but I don't know very many. Most of them are you know, they're playing in this big field and there are influences coming in from other writers too. And, sure. and, um, and what we're really talking about is a kind of, um, you know, is cosmic horror or, um, you know, a horror of a certain kind, like psychological and, and about the unknown and that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, let's go from there. Um, for you, Mike, what drew you to, you know, the, the cosmic horror genre and how, what theme, you know, what are the 
strongest influences on your own writing do you find in that? I mean, I did pass through a, a time of reading Lovecraft. I'm not trying to say it just isn't any part of what I read, but, um, you know, I went through phases of reading lots of things. I, you know, I probably was more interested in comic books, and there are a lot of comic books with a lot of maybe cosmic horror and Lovecraft influence in them. Um, and then Stephen King and Harlan Ellison and Lovecraft around the same time in my early teens. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and then you're, when, you, when you kind of discover something that you love and you're kind of a hyperactive um, teenager, you kind of get like wanting to go to the library maybe and like research what are the other things that are like that, that I, that I want to find out more, you know. And so then that kind of gets, got me spinning off into different things like science fiction and fantasy things too. And, um, and so I already mentioned some of the other writers that are of the, of the old fashioned, the old tiny sort of cosmic horror writers that I really like. I, I'm, you know, really fond of Arthur Mackin and Blackwood. And there are lots of people doing, um, you know, really good work that's in that same tradition, but it's modern and, and they're not trying to emulate those old writers, but they're people doing modern horror that has a cosmic element, you know, um, you know, John Langan and Laird Barron and people like that, uh, a lot a lot of the people that are doing really vital work right now. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's obviously there are touchstones in our culture of, you know, Lovecraft related stuff, you know, right up, like up to what you said with Lovecraft Country. I mean, just being on HBO a couple days ago and, um, and, and people riffing on the ideas, but kind of flipping them, like not only like that, but like the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. People are doing kind of new things with the ideas and turning it into their own thing. And uh, it's become sort of almost a public domain type of a thing to riff on and, and mutate and remix into something else. Nice. Thanks for that. I was, I was actually going to ask if you had um, other modern or contemporary authors that um, you felt would be a great, you know, influenced your work as well. Um, for this, for the sake of, you know, bookstore marketing and things, um, do you, do you agree with the, the kind of label that, that your, that your work falls into the cosmic horror category or do you feel like there's a better, um, yeah, label, label for lack of a better term for it. The categorizations, it just depends on who you're talking to. You know, if I was trying to tell somebody at work, what do I write? I would probably not say Lovecraftian horror because they wouldn't even know what that was. I would probably say weird horror, you know, that kind of thing. Usually if you just say horror, they kind of get it, but then they assume you're talking about guys with an ax or a knife chasing people or, or monsters. And that's not what I write. So, you know, but people who are, uh, who are more versed and who are more better read, um, they might understand more about the weird tradition or, or cosmic horror, what those things mean. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so Christine, Wendy, Cody, um, what drew you to the horror genre specifically as a, um, as a writer and start with Cody. Okay. Um, I came to horror very early on. I had, I, my earliest memories are night terrors and, uh, I, in sorting out a very turbulent early childhood, I uh, found myself watching monster movies late at night and uh, reading uh, horror comics and things. And uh, while my, my mother was uh, convinced that this was causing the nightmares, uh, she was kind of overwhelmed. I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house. And I, uh, just, I, I came to a realization that these were that they were like bonus monster movies after they, that I get to watch after they send me to bed. And then they stopped happening. Um, 
which is kind of a ripoff. But uh, so I I felt like horror was a a very vital means of navigating just the emotional pitfalls and 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 trauma of, of early childhood. And I still I write other other genres. I I, I like to to kind of top a little bit off of uh, what you were talking with Mike Griffin about. I, I don't think of my whole, the stuff that I write as, uh, as cosmic, all the stuff that I write as cosmic horror. And yet I don't, I don't like to classify what I write based on what eats or attacks people any, any more than, than, than Mike does. But in, I've, I've seen people in describing my work or in reviewing my work, talk about how there's a common theme in how the, the, the people respond to it. And that's really what, what, uh, makes horror more than just so this scary thing happens to this person is how do the, that's what people come to horror for is to find out how are we going to face the unacceptable how are we going to face the impossible how how do we manage that what what is likely to, to be in our hearts and in our heads when that happens to us and um and in in my stuff does have a very strong existential component in that there's whether the threat is mundane or supernatural it's always in how the the human being in question either either folds and refuses to accept the reality of the situation or how they do and there's there there is something philosophical in that and uh i i think that's what will keep readers coming to uh coming to work Love, uh, lovecraft kind of tried to dodge the question of how of human reactions to things he from from having next to no dialogue uh to having just uh, uh, character's completely internalized world, and that's all uh, all that you get. Uh, and and so, it, but when they are confronted by reality or, or confronted by this unacceptable reality, they freak the hell out and and lose their minds, and it almost turns into surreal word salad. And uh, I, I think that does provide a better sense than a lot of pulp magazines did uh, at the time of how the how the mind comes unhinged how how the the mind becomes obsessive and then becomes detached when confronted by something awful not just not just imminent peril not just somebody's going to stab you or tie you to a train track or something but but that somebody's going to show you something that makes everything that you know meaningless nice <laughs> and do you find that you carry a lot of that over into your own work like is that a kind of recurring theme for you Oh, it, it, it kind of is. It's been a long, long time since I've done anything that was literally Lovecraftian. Um, but the, it, uh, even in much more elemental things where the, where the threat really is about getting thrown off of a building, um, I, 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 I'm drawn to work that, that does this, effectively does the same thing to the reader that is happening to the uh, uh, to the protagonist or the victim in the story, um, and 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 so you know the, the the way that the mind the way that the mind works the way that the mind creates bubble reality saves you're being thrown off been thrown off of a tall building, and and you have long enough to to meditate and cogitate on your fate or for your life to pass before your eyes, and I mean that's a thing that's that's an element that's so rich with with fusty cliches. Because nobody who's ever actually done it, you know, it, it, you can only research it once and then you can't write it. Uh, and, and so the, 
I had uh, I, I had the reality of mortality thrust upon me very early in life as a child, and so ever since then I've been kind of trying to trying to navigate that, and really fascinated by the all the manifold ways that our society does divert itself from the reality of of of, of death and and uh, the reality of that that our reality that our reality itself is a shared consensus reality, and it's and it's subject to frame. Um, um, that, that, I mean, I went to immediately from from being a, a huge Lovecraft fan and discovering him in junior high to discovering Philip K. Dick in in high school, who was you know in next generation's Lovecraft in terms of being somebody at the very fringes of of writing, barely able to make a living, who right upon or right right after his death was suddenly seen as a prophet. Right. To change the subject <laughs> two or three times in his somebody else. Um, how about you, Christine? Would you, I mean, do you, like, I guess share share with us some of your influences, either, you know, like old-timey Lovecraftian circle era or modern, and like, and how, how those things influence your writing and how you see them kind of coming through in the, the themes and the things that you write about, how, how you've made those your own. Well, my, my horror history goes back to when I was a kid, and I can blame my grandfather for it, because... He had out in the garage this uh, bookshelf full of old, you know, of, of paperbacks that grandma wouldn't let him have in the house. So whenever we'd visit, I would sneak out to the garage and rummage through all these all these paperbacks. And if you've seen uh, Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell, that that was my childhood right there. All the, all the skeletons, all the nature run amok, all that kind of stuff. So I would, I would be out there just like reading in that hot, dusty garage, these James Herbert's The Rats, things like that. You know, I was 10 years old. <laughs> so that my, my influence started there. Um, probably for my for my writing style, I think some early influences on that would have been like John Saul. I was I was really into John Saul for a while there, and um, Robert McCammon, who I maintain is the most underrated of that generation or set or whatever. I mean, everything I've read from him is just fantastic, and like like Cody was saying, I don't really classify my writing as anything in particular because I write all over the place. Um, I've written fantasy, I've written steampunkish, um, quieter horror, really, really nasty and appropriate horror, um, just all, all over the place. What, what I like most is the challenge to myself, like a themed anthology call, for instance. That's where most of my short story ideas come from. I'll see a themed anthology call and I'll think, oh, that could be fun. Can I do it? How can I really twist that around? Um, and especially all my, all my Lovecraftian um, stories have, have been for themed anthology calls because I really enjoy, I'm a lifelong um, fan of mythology and history. So here was this whole new mythology. And one of my favorite things to do is to combine that 
with other mythologies or set it in other times of history to see how it plays out. So I've done Lovecraftian Viking stuff. I did a, uh, I did a Lovecraftian take on the Iliad called the Ithiliad, where the Trojans worship all the Lovecraftian deities, but the Greeks worship Zeus and Apollo and all them. And I like playing with that, seeing how I can make it work and blend it all together. Or, or turn it upside down and just mess with it. And how about you, Wendy? Well, you I guess, some- you know, for me, when I was a kid, I was uh, the youngest of three girls, although later a little brother showed up, which was really waking. Uh, and my oldest sister loved to torment me um, by, you know, she'd, she'd hide and jump out and grab me. Uh, she chased me around the house screaming, I thirst to drink your blood. And my parents had like zero boundaries as to what, what got watched on TV when I was around. So like at age four, I can remember watching um, the Amityville Horror on TV. And, uh, and, and uh, what's the movie that's like about it has Steve Gutenberg about what happens when uh, nuclear war starts. Uh, so I was basically constantly afraid my entire childhood. That was just a constant state of being afraid of something. Spiders, bugs, you name it, I was scared of it. And so one day my sister had brought home, uh, she was reading, I think it's Skeleton Crew. Uh, it's, a, it's a collection of short stories by Stephen King that includes the story, The Raft. And she was talking about how just terrifying and scary and gross the story was. And I, I have a feeling I shouldn't read it, like, um, but I was a very precocious reader, so I knew I could. And so I, like, snuck it out of the book box, and I read it, and I was like, Oh, I love it. And then I, I totally got really into horror. And, um, you know, I I was kind of limited to what the library had. So it was lots of Stephen King and Dean R. Kuntz. And, um, and, and then, you know, I went off into science fiction and fantasy. And, you know, I, I think I've read, I read like both of David Edding's big uh, fantasy series, like three times as a teenager, you know, stuff like that. And so when it came back to horror as an adult, it just, it suddenly, it was like a homecoming and it was just a joy to be a part of it. And, you know, a a big influence for me, obviously, is that for the past 10 years, I've been working with John Joseph Adams with his magazines and anthologies. And so being uh, exposed constantly to to other short fiction has been kind of a, a big deal uh, for developing me as a writer and being a part of just like finding out that I really like people who are part of the Lovecraftian community. Like most of the things that I've written that have been labeled Lovecraftian have been because somebody I knew was doing a themed anthology and I just wanted to be a part of it. Well, A, because I could use some money because I have a kid and she, you know, had a lot of orthodontia. Um, <laughs> But also just because I, I love the people that are part of the Lovecraft community. It's like some of the coolest, wackiest people I know and really friendly. So that's been a huge part. Um, but my own work, you know, I've lived in Oregon. I mean, I was, I've, been, I've been in the Pacific Northwest my entire life. And basically almost everything I write has something to do with the Pacific Northwest. All of my novels are like, even when they're set on other planets, the other planets are basically Oregon in space, you know? Um, And I feel like there's nothing as inspiring for horror than history because people are terrible. Um, 
not all the time, <laughs> and certainly not the present company. But yeah, so that's that's a huge thing for me is is just um, taking things from history and responding to them. And um, as for like some other authors who are currently active, who I've been reading that I really love, I mean. I gotta give a big shout out to Molly Tanzer. She writes extremely fun books that, um, you know, like her her Creatures of Want and Comfort series is like definitely drawing on Lovecraftian elements. Um, they're about demons, but they tend to sort of spike Lovecraftian, and they are blended with history in like a really fun way. So I definitely encourage people to check out her stuff. Um, a huge inspiration lately, I'd say, would be John Langan. His book, The Fisherman, is one of, like, the most amazing novels I've ever read. Um, yeah, so so there's some people who are working in the field uh, who are writing, like, novels that I think are just outstanding people to check out. But there's a lot of cool people who are doing short stories and weird cool venues. Um, kind of like Craig Lawrence Gidney is, uh, he was my co-editor on Queers Destroy Horror, and he's gone on to create some amazing short stories and cool collections, and you know, he just started his own magazine. And so if you're looking for black writers who are working in this field, he's like somebody really cool you should look for. Ditto with Victor Lavalle, um, who somebody mentioned earlier, he wrote The Ballad of Black Tom. He's just an amazing writer and so inspiring, and they're doing things with Lovecraft and just with horror in general in like a, a new way, and I think, uh, yeah, check them out. <laughs> awesome. Super cool. Um, thank you all for, for that. Um, just trying to make sure that we get through all the talking points before it's time to open up the Q and A. Um, but I think we covered most of the, like the influence and writing things that I had wanted to to hear from you about. Let's go back to kind of when you first started writing and like how you started writing, how you first you know went through the process of trying to get published and. Was it, you know, did you have a book and shop it around to publishers? Like, what was your process? Did you, you know, enter contests and things like that? Um, maybe, maybe some helpful tips to any budding authors who are on the, who are watching this right now um, to, to help them avoid some pitfalls and um, scam artists and things like that. So, <laughs> um, so, so Mike, you spent a lot of time, um, you said, in your younger years doing recording and things like that. So that's the publishing of sorts. Um, yep. But when, it came, when you moved into writing, like, what was that like for you? Like, where did you get started? Well, I had, I had written a bit before um, and not published, but writing a lot um, before I started doing electronic music and started my record label. And I think running the label and dealing with demos helped me think of, think of publishing from the editor's or the publisher's point of view, because you're dealing with somebody who's made their creative product that they're really in love with and they send it to you and it doesn't always work for you. And you have to, you have to keep them in perspective and you can't make everyone's dreams come true and, you know, take everyone's work and get it out there. So it helped me to have perspective as far as sending my work out there that it was, you know, I knew from, from just from reading about it, from having tried to write earlier in my 20s, that obviously you're going to get rejected most of the time, but it helped me keep it in perspective. They weren't saying I'm a bad writer. They weren't saying you're never going to make it. They're just saying, I can't take this story and it's not right for me or it's, just keep trying or whatever. But it helped me to, to keep it in per the kind of perspective that I needed to, to keep going. And uh, I do think that from my own, you know, writing experience in the past that I, 
you know, looking back, I remember distinctly thinking that I was good enough and I didn't understand why I wasn't breaking through and getting published. But now looking back uh, at some of that work that I was doing, then I think that I wasn't quite as good as I thought I was. And I think that a really common thing that I, I see with writers coming up is they often start thinking they're better than they are, not because of a big ego, but because they don't have the editorial acumen or the perspective to see what's really on the page. They know what they meant to write and they think it's amazing because they had this idea, but what's actually on the page isn't quite as uh, fine-tuned or accomplished as they meant it to be. And as you get better, the gap between what you meant it to be and what it really is on the page gets narrower. Your, your work catches up with your ambition and your goals to where uh, it's getting good enough to where, okay, I, I'm, I'm writing the story that's pretty close to what I meant it to be. And then at that point, um, if you keep going, you'll, you'll start to get some traction. Um, and so it was really just a matter of fighting and fighting and fighting and keep, you know, continuing to, you have to have kind of a stubborn streak. I think most writers that end up making it have a, a persistence that just gets bigger and gets, uh, they, they work harder as they get defeated more and they get rejected more. Uh, if you're, if you're, uh, if your reflex is to back down and quit, then you will, and you won't continue into the point of where you get published. So perseverance and, and willingness to kind of deal with that kind of defeat uh, for a long time. And also eventually the ability to see yourself more clearly and actually see what you're actually putting on the page and not just what you meant to, be, to put on the page is a very important thing. Really, really solid advice there <laughs> and, and important to hear. Um, how about you, Christine? Um, well, even in school, I was the, the weird kid who would, when we'd have a writing assignment, I'd be writing about werewolves, or I remember one that was about a Girl Scout troop. I was a Girl Scout, and they got a new troop leader who uh, basically recruited them all into becoming murderous cultists. It's really a wonder my parents didn't get more uh, letters from the teacher. So... Um, but as for becoming published, it was it was uh, the gaming that got me my first experiences. My first ever published piece was through Steve Jackson Games Pyramid Magazine, and my first professional rate sale was um, Dawn the Living Impaired for the zombie that the zombie collection is named for. That was to uh, James Louder at Chaosium. And he was also the first time, before that, I sold a few to like token and small change markets. But this, this was the big time. And it was the first time that a real editor really put me through the ringer. And like Mike was saying, I had that moment of like, <laughs> how can he say that? But it passed as I realized, wait, he's he's right. And I learned so much from working with him on various other projects over the years. I think the most important lesson, though, was that it's not about my ego. It's about making the story as, as good as it can possibly be. And I've, I've kept that in mind. Uh, moving moving forward ever since. As for advice for new writers, I'm y'all are lucky right now to live in the age of the internet where you have so much information and so many resources right there at your fingertips. I mean, 
you're not going to be buying the new edition of that, what was it, the writer's market and having this big honker of a phone book and mailing out query after query and all that. It's so much more accessible now and make make use of that, but don't abuse it either. Just because you can tweet or email or whatever to your favorite writer, don't don't be weird, don't be a pest, and don't expect them to owe you because you know having having access doesn't guarantee you know that they owe you a response or or anything like that and there are so many communities out there so many good groups i mean read listen observe learn um it's in a way it's as much about getting along with people and showing editors and publishers that you're not going to be a colossal pain in the butt diva to work with you know if if you can make a connection with somebody, they're much more likely to give you a shot and a helping hand than if you come across all, you know, I've just written the best thing ever. And, you know, make make those human connections. I think that's really what it's all about. How about you, Cody? Wow. You, okay, you guys took all the good ones. Um, so <laughs> as I've gotten older I, and I look back on my life, Life and I look at the lessons that I've learned, I, I realized that I really did learn a lot of the most important lessons from bullies. Um, and and kids that would give me a hard time for reading uh, fiction and then genre fiction on top of it, because that's something that never happened. Um, and, and then they hit me with the book, which which is what drove, me, drove the lesson home. But but it drove me to realize that that there are not everything has a concrete uh there's not a concrete reward from reading from reading science fiction or fantasy or horror but it it is however nourishing and enriching it is for your soul and as a writer i've had to learn to accept that i had to I had to accept that that success on my on the terms that i that that i that i've got uh didn't look like what i thought it was going to be at the outset a lot of people come in with a careerist uh, mentality that that if they put their ass in the chair and put the book out, the the audience will come. It's 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 great writing in in a like probably the lowest regarded lowest revenue genre uh, in in genre fiction with the most successful author who ever lived at the top <laughs> of it. Because how many how many people have you ever told? Yeah, no, I write horror fiction, and 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 they say like Stephen King. It's like when you, when you say, yeah, I live in California, like Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. Disneyland and California are synonymous. Uh, but, but that, that, uh, I've had to, I, I, I was writing for a CD-ROM magazine. Remember how hot CD-ROM magazines were for five minutes and, and, uh, right out of college. And for about a year, I thought we're, we're going to be huge. And then that blew up. And then I made my first professional sale of a book in uh, 1995 they didn't put it out till until 2006 with substantial changes no contract and no payment so i've had to learn that that uh not to put all my eggs in one basket thinking this book's going to come out and it's going to change my life and it's going to save my marriage and it's again and, and save the rec center and 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 or do all of those all those miraculous things 
success has to come out of writing something that's amazing that communicates something wonderful to people and it and it it needn't pay all your bills it needn't uh, uh, become your career. It needn't bring you fame and fortune to be something rewarding and worth giving a portion of your life to. Also, keep some, as my ex-wives would ask ask me to add, to tell you, keep some perspective on the balance between work and life when you're doing this. Uh, I I always I know a lot of people do it on top of a day job. And so it comes out of sleep. It comes out of personal relationships. It comes out of it comes out of valuable t- Netflix binging time, and. And and so the the uh, keeping that keeping that balance as you go up is important, and keeping a, a, a realistic perspective, personal perspective. Don't listen to anybody else to tell you what you want to get out of your writing, what you hope to achieve with it, what you hope to communicate, because it's it's something personal that you're giving the world. Nobody should be able to tell you how how and what how to do it or what to do with it. Ultimately, certainly not for money. <laughs> and how, how about you, Wendy? Uh, you know, I, I think a couple of pieces of, of tippage that I would share would be, uh, uh, you know, obviously difficult to do right now in the era of the coronavirus, but if you can get the chance, try to go to a convention where they're doing, you know, where horror writers are getting together or whatever kind of writing that you're interested in. Go and, and see what it's like. Be with your people. Um, don't go to like schmooze big editors or like meet famous people, just go to like enjoy it and meet people that are kind of like in the same boat that you're in. Like you, because there'll be lots of you, um, you know, you start talking to the people who are sitting in the panel waiting for the, the big shots to start talking. Um, and cause you don't know where those relationships might take you. A lot of the things that have happened to me in my writing career have come through the friendships that I've struck up at those conventions. Um, a lot of the people who were just nobodies like me, they grew up to be editors and they, they bought stories by me. Um, or, you know, maybe they, they have a great book and a really great agent and they wind up connecting you to an agent or something. You know, just try to make connections. And more, more importantly, you know, like Mike was pointing out, there's a lot of rejection and a lot of hardship in this business. And it is really nice to have people who are, who have been there in the same boat. And it's good to have friends, you know, who, who can commiserate and be like, Oh my gosh, did you know that X editor at Y magazine is a total jerk? And your friend will be like, yes, I have submitted there. They really are stick pots and I'm never going to send them a story except I guess they pay like, whoa. So and by, by like, whoa, I mean like six cents a word, <laughs> you know? So, so it's, it's, it's great to make like, yes, try to make friends. Don't bother sucking up to the big shots. Just make friends with people who are in the same situation that you are and see what comes of it. Um, also, uh, you cannot go wrong. I, I feel like, the song Tub Thumping by Chumba Wamba is an excellent song to, to know when you're in this business because you will get knocked down and you will have to get up again over and over and over <laughs> again, over and over and over again. Um, yeah, I would say those are probably, oh, and, and yeah, like, like Cody was saying, I think the most important thing you can do, like, you know, I'm in, in like uh, less than a month, I'm going to be reading probably 
I don't know, maybe a thousand submissions when we opened the submissions at Nightmare. And I think, you know, there will be a lot of great stories, but I think what every editor is looking out for is something true and unique that only you could write. So to just be yourself and write your story and that is going to get you that's that's the most important thing you can do because even if you don't like make it to Stephen King levels of success or even Cody Goodfellow levels of success you will have put out something amazing in the world that nobody else could do and hopefully it will scare the pain of success. So I think we are we probably need to wrap up our talking part of it and let people ask some questions but I just wanted to go around to each of you and ask like what are you reading right now and in the past year have you read something that made you mad because you didn't think of it first (laughs) (laughs) um Christine you can go first I'm I'm not I'm in the middle of editing white trash gothic three for Edwin Lee so I'm not reading anything recreationally at the moment. <laughs> I've been in edit mode for, for a while here. Um, and I don't, I don't get mad when I read something else. <laughs> I may have a moment of, ooh, I wish I'd done that. But it's, it's not anger. It's, it's admiration and pride. And I've got to put in a plug here for Chandler Morrison, who is an extreme horror author. He's fairly new. He's young, um, and I, I, he's the, one of the best writers I've ever seen. I mean, I don't want to say he's better than I was at that age, because he's better than I am now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I got to give a shout out to him. Anything uh, that he puts out jumps right to the top of my list. How about you, Mike? Well, what I'm reading right now uh, is the only good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And it's, and I guess that's kind of like, I think a lot of people are reading that book or just finished that book. It's sort of a hot book and he's, he's been around for a long time. He's a great writer and he's done a lot of short stories and a lot of, just a lot of books in general. He's a really productive guy, but I think this has been the book that seems like it's leveled him up a bunch. Um, everyone's talking about it and it's, uh, seems to be selling. I, I don't know how much it's selling, but I just have that sense by the number of reviews and the number of people who say they're reading it and it's very good. He said yesterday that it entered its fourth printing. Yeah, and it just Ooh. came out, so that's a lot. So, um, yeah, so I'm in the middle of that, and uh, I usually have a couple of books that I'm sort of reading, uh, I like alternate books that I sort of divert over to. I can't think of you know, something that I read in the last year that made me, you know, mad or made me envious. I do get that sometimes, you know, where somebody writes something and I feel like uh, they're just so so clever and they're so, like, they've got it really dialed in as far as accomplishing you know, really hitting the mark. Um, you know, John Langan will do that sometimes, or Brian Evanson, um, where, I'll, where I'll read them and I'll just say, they are really so good, you know. Uh, that kind of thing does happen. So, yeah, I got to finish The Only Good Indians, so don't give it away. <laughs> and then, oh, and I just finished Survivor Song by Paul Tremblay, and it's another one of those I think pretty much everybody's read already, but um, it's another one that's a pretty, uh, it's an easy read, but it's just solid. It really gets you, pulls you through, so it's a good book. How about you, Wendy? Well, I'm, I'm like Mike. I usually read a lot of books at one time. Uh, so I just finished A Peculiar Peril by Jeff Vandermeer, which is like a very ridiculous, over-the-top Alice in Wonderland experience. Um, but like 
a thousand times more fun. I really loved it. I'm just about to start The Only Good Indian, uh, which I'm really excited about. And I'm also reading a short story collection by Benjamin Percy called The Suicide Woods, which has a story set in uh, Portland's Forest Park. Um, and, and he's a great uh, scary writer guy. Um, and I'm also reading a book about uh, the young, like, people who fight to save, like, special areas of nature called Irreplaceable by Julian Hoffman. Oh, and a book that, uh, something that I read that um, I, I don't know that, I, it didn't like make me like totally jealous, but I found it to be absolutely delightful. And I, I've never been able to write anything that had like a really cool found footage kind of vibe, but there's a short story came out, I guess like a year and a half ago by a writer named Nino Chikri, and it's called uh, Dead Air. And it's basically like transcriptions of like recordings of creepy stuff. And I really loved it. It's on Nightmare Magazine, so. Okay. <laughs> and Cody, what are you reading? Uh, I've been reading a lot of, uh, my next big project is set in the 1930s. So I've been reading a lot of stuff that's almost 100 years old. And so whenever I come across something that I get jealous of, I look it up. Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> um, I can have that. Uh, but, uh, I, I've been reading, uh, Brian Evanson's, uh, song for the unraveling of the world and so it's, it's phenomenal. And I, I've, uh, it, I've made it last all summer by cheating on it with numerous other books. Um, but the, the thing that none of his ideas, I mean, cause ideas are just something you just, you, you, you find it. And, and, but what I really wish I could, I could just jab a trocar into the back of his spine and actually drink out of him. Um, and Lord knows I thought about trying often enough, uh, is his ability to get in and out of, of these stories so quickly and so effectively to just come up behind you and ice pick you and, and, and put this idea in your head and then he's gone. Um, they're really fast, but they don't feel like gimmicky flash fiction. He finds really, really neat, new ways to just jettison a lot of the extraneous detail in stories and really get right to the exact center of the cheeseburger. And it's made out of you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he's great. So the last, the last question I have is, um, I guess just raise your hand. Like, do you still have a day job? Raise your hand if writing full time is not your <laughs> normal, just your day job. Well, it's an overnight job, then thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, raise your hand if, like, you're just a full-time writer now. Anyone? Anyone? Okay, well, half and half. That's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, I do write a lot of stuff that's, like, not, like, I mean, sometimes I'm writing brochures for, sure. like, companies. But <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so, so creative writing not necessarily like all your stuff. You are writing all the time. Well, excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, we'll have some... Um, questions in the chat. I don't know if the attendees got information on how to ask questions, but there's a little Q&A button down at the bottom. And if you click that, I think it opens up the, um, the question window so that we can see them and answer them. Um, and then here's a, here's a great question for all of you. Will the COVID pandemic influence your future storylines? If it That's okay, it is okay if no. <laughs> I, I run a lot of historical stuff anyway. So, uh, probably not for the most part. If it does, it's just going to be a side note because I'm 
so sick of it in real life. I don't want it in my fiction. I don't want to read about it. I, <laughs> I'm not looking forward to the, the inevitable onslaught of pandemic novels that are coming our way. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I'm there already. <laughs> Do the rest of you feel kind of the same, like where it's too close? That's what I feel like. And I'm, I'm in the middle of finishing up a story right now and I'm not going to change it, but I keep catching myself reading it and thinking, why would these people who haven't seen each other in a while walk right up and sit right by each other? That's crazy. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to change it. <laughs> um, let's see, another question. Okay. Cosmicism slash Lovecraftian horror emerged from an earlier era zeitgeist. And with technology radically changing what life is and who we are, how do you see the Lovecraftian slash cosmic aesthetic changing and evolving in this time? Cody, did you just raise your hand? Broken. Broken. Go ahead, Cody. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Lovecraft was, I mean, he thought he was going to be an astronomer. Um, that was what he, he, where he saw his career path going. Um, and when he realized you couldn't self-educate and then uh, that it wouldn't translate in, in, into, a, into a diploma, uh, he still was a very avid amateur amateur scientist, and he kept up on the latest discoveries. He, in some cases, kind of pre predicted some things or, or, or jumped the gun. You know, uh, Whisper in Darkness revolves around the discovery of Pluto in 1930. Um, and so the latest technology uh, uh, that then gave them uh, gave people that lived in that era a sense that they already they were already living in the future and they'd already already understood everything there was to understand about the universe and of course they weren't even asked didn't even know enough to ask the right questions then our our, our sense of scientific progress has inc vastly increased our understanding of the universe but like with any good religion the great old ones always live outside of what we know and what we understand and our ability to comprehend them uh with our it's not limited by our tools. It's limited by our by our minds. And our minds, in spite of all of our technology, are still running a lot of uh, Ice Age and Stone Age software, and and even primate software. And so the the ways in which our technology gives us a false sense of security or can reveal to us things that we're not ready for, as much as we think we've as far as we think we've come, uh, is those are still tropes and, and, and themes that uh, cosmic horror has uh, gives gives cosmic horror ways to offer us uh, uh, tell us new kinds of stories because our, our situation is it, it's evolving but it's not really it, it, it's not really changing uh, as our ability to create our own environment uh, uh, really speeds up and to create ourselves with genetic engineering and things like that. Uh, these questions are for every problem we solve. We're gonna. It, it's a hydra head that will have nine more problems. So mm -hmm. I, I think cosmic horror will be with us as long as we as long as we live and we die and and don't know where we came from and don't know where we're going. And uh, I don't think science will ever solve really answer find the answers to those questions. So kind of the more we more we advance and things change, the more they stay the same because we're still fundamentally the same humans. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that stories that still that still stay on top of our understanding of the universe as, as it is right now, or or that even extrapolate. I, I love near future uh, uh, cosmic horror stories uh, that that take our our sense of our, our control over the environment 
to its logical conclusion and then and then present it in a universe that really has no bottom or no center um yeah no i i i kind of love those those are the things that make me as excited as i was when i was a kid reading the the original lovecraft stories um do either imitates or or, or yeah (laughs) christine wendy and michael do you have anything to add to that no that was that was so perfect. Thorough. <laughs> um, there's another question for for all the panelists. What what truly scares you? The death of my family and loved ones. Yeah. Maybe for me, like loss of control. You know, things getting away from you. Um, one of my biggest fears is being unable to. I mean, is something happening to someone near and dear to me, and being unable to help? Um, I've spent the past three years going through medical hell, so I'm not as afraid of death as I used to be, but I'm far afraid, like Mike said, of, of, you know, of helplessness. Uh, the idea of being able to control my, my own, my own self, my own thoughts, you know, of losing myself, my, uh, one of my grandparents went out to dementia and that's always been my my greatest terror right there to to lose me to lose who i am you know what happens to my body that's no big deal i can be a brain in a jar that's my retirement plan it's brain in a jar give me wi-fi and a good jar and i'm i'm fine but to lose the ability to think and communicate and create is my worst all time Wow, you're coming down now. Someone says spiders. You have no fears. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm afraid that I'll die and my cats will eat the bindings out of my most collectible books <laughs> instead of my delicious face. No, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of going insane. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of, of of losing my ability to. To, to process reality, uh, death, uh, I, uh, then, then it's somebody else's problem. But uh, to, to be in your reality and not be able to, to process what's going on or not be able to, uh, to move out of uh, trauma or fear, uh, that's what most frightens me. I, I've, I, know, I know how I would respond in a, in, in, in a warfare situation because I've played paintball um, and I know that I'm that guy who empties his gun at the first bush he sees and then gets all of his buddies killed. Uh, I, 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 I took the sample ASVAB and, and they said, you know, how does Lieutenant Goodfellow sound? And I said, how does killed by own troops sound? <laughs> and, and then I left. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's my fear. Uh, and now it's, you know, getting, getting older because, I was lucky in that most of my stuff basically worked and now everything's starting to not work again and not work. And now you're realizing, yeah, why all of your favorite artists from the eighties were so whiny all through the two thousands. Um, and now, and now they're so quiet. Um, it's, and, and so, yeah, it's the, it's the fears that everything, every, everybody, uh, is afraid of and kind of the, the, Bigger fear on top of that is just that realization that every every everybody who's jumping up and down and saying life is wonderful is really trying to shout down that 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 howling fear inside themselves that none of this means anything, and uh, yeah, the hokey pokey is not what it's all about, and that's what keeps me up at night. 
Is there one more? There's one more, right? There's um one more what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I was going to move on to the next question. Sorry. Oh, oh, um, I, I, there's, <laughs> are you reading the ch- the Q and A too? Um, yeah. That one. Yeah. Like as as horror writers, do you have a favorite scare the pants off you movie that you love? I mean, I have some, but they're not, they're not off the beaten path ones. They're like The Exorcist or in the Blair Witch Project or something like that. So everyone knows yeah. about those. What is it about those films that just scare the pants off you? I don't know. I, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I, I, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a gut level thing. You know, I think it's what, what gets you and what disturbs you is, uh, you know, you could just say, oh, well, uh, The Exorcist must be scary because it's the devil or a demon is coming. But there are plenty of movies that have devils or demons that are not scary. So it's not just that that's what it is. It's just something about the way that it, uh, you know, the story and the characters make the situation really unnerving. And uh, I keep, every once in a while, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. So I'll think, oh, I'll watch it again. Now that I'm this tough old guy, uh, I'll watch it again and it will be no big deal. And it still scares me. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, there, there are so many that it's really, it's, hard, it's always hard to pick. So I'm going to go back to the earliest one I remember and the most recent one that freaked me out. And the earliest one I remember was Invaders from Mars when I was a kid. And these people <laughs> had these staples in the back of their necks, and that's how you knew they weren't who they looked like. Boy, that was, that was nightmare fuel for years. Um, and most most recently, the one that got to me was Vivarium, because when I read Wrinkle in Time, there was that scene with the neighborhood where all the houses were the same and all the kids were bouncing their balls in unison, and that creeped me out really bad. Then along comes Vivarium, and I'm watching that, and they're going through this neighborhood, and it's all the same houses, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to keep watching it. Even before they brought in the creepy kid, who might be the creepiest kid yet in the creepy kid genre. <laughs> Does anybody else feel like a wrinkle in time? Like, sure, it's for kids, but isn't it cosmic horror, right? Oh yeah, I would, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. definitely, for sure. <laughs> so on the super scary side of things, um, you know movies it doesn't matter what it is i'm gonna scream and jump at every jump scare that's who i am but what i love are scary video games and i think my my absolute most delight is kind of dumb is slender the awakening like that is a video game that like just playing it just gets there's like a scene in there like this whole little section with like this haunted farm and it's scary af it is truly truly scary if you get a chance, you should totally play it. <laughs> Cody, any any movies that uh, scary okay. really scare you? I mean, I I I scare things that are that scare other people um, are exhilarating and fascinating to me, and so I I re- it, I have to watch horror movies. I have to try and make people who don't watch horror movies and with very good neurological, you know behavioral reasoning watch horror movies so that i can rediscover why they're why and how they're scary um like i would i uh, my mom has reached the point in her life where she'll watch just about anything now and and then just uh uh uh, and then just you know 
process it at a, at, at, at a baseline level, but only when she tells me that something's scary will I understand that it's actually scary. I, I, I kind of thought of the, the, the uh, things that I dwell on are like the ending of the movie Coherence, um, which is a, a, one of those kind of really low-budge ensemble cast dinner party movies where they filmed it you know, at the producer's house, and that's why he's the <laughs> producer. Um, but the, it's, it's, about, it's about convergent and divergent realities where uh, the, this, these people at this party encounter uh, these other, other dinner parties where they're themselves. And at some of these parties, uh, some really awful things have happened on this night. And some of these groups of people are very ready to kill their, their alternate selves. And um, that's the kind of thing that really, really uh, sticks with me. I, I think about things that I watched as a child. And yeah, The Exorcist is probably the only scare your pants off movie I've ever seen. Cause I watched it when I was in traction in a hospital and um, during the spinal tap scene, uh, the, the kid who was strapped to his bed next to me uh, escaped his restraints, knocked my urine jug on me and started pulling on the counterweight for my leg. Um, so it's kind of like a William Castle deluxe uh, thrill vision experience, but it was, it was, yeah, it, 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 they're really helping the movie along. Um, it, but it's always, it's moments. It's not, it, it, it's not whole films. I think the moment in the shining when, uh, when Danny's running from his father and confronts the, the, the man in the tuxedo on the bed and the, and the man in the dog suit kneeling in front of him, because it seems like as a child, it represents everything that you're terrified of uh, about adulthood about all of the strange things that, that adults seem to do and that seem to run their lives instead of what you think and what you want your uh, adulthood to, uh, to be like when you're a child. And then as an adult watching it, it's terrifying because it seems like it's the most degrading, empty, awful thing that you moment of, of your life. And that's going to be your afterlife is living there and watching children constantly blunder in and, and, and then back away and wetting their pants and, and, and they're going to become you because you can't help but screw them up. So, yeah, The Shining. <laughs> okay. Nice. I agree. <laughs> um, let's see. Here's a quick one. Does it annoy you to be lumped into the category of Lovecraftian fiction? No, because, like I said, I write all over the place. So I'm not worried about that. I feel like if you put stuff out into the world, written stuff or art or music or whatever, you're just going to get genreified or categorized or put into a section at Tower Records or Blockbuster Video, and you don't get to pick the section. And, you know, being a baby about it or crying about it, it doesn't matter. You just, you're doing <laughs> what you're doing. And, um, and it doesn't really have that much to do with what your actual work is, you know? I mean, I think uh, far worse to me was like, What's that? What's that movie that James Cameron made with like the blue people? Avatar. Uh, yeah, much worse than everybody. When I like several reviews of like my my sci-fi novel were like, this is like Avatar. <laughs> what? No, God, no, stop! There are no, <laughs> there's no romance. There's nothing. Wow, you should sue them. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Um, the next question, several people in the horror community have mentioned being in the current horror renaissance. Do you all agree or disagree with that and why? And where do you think cosmic horror fits into that? And I'm just going to start off by saying, I'm just going to feed this to you, that um, I don't think horror renaissance is a, uh, is a thing. 
because I don't think horror has ever gone away. I think it's always been there. Um, if you look at all the summer blockbusters, there's always some kind of horror movie in there. Every Halloween, there's some kind of horror movie coming out. Um, Stephen King books, people can't stop making movies out of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I think it's it's always been part of our, our basic humanity. And it may seem like it when something, you know, makes a big splash in the, the public eye. But yeah, I wouldn't call it a renaissance. I think it's just continuing to to turn and you know, different like a like a big uh, like a like a big gemstone, different facets are gonna catch the light. And so and people may think well they'll, they'll see that flash and, and think it's a new thing, but it's just a different facet on the same jewel that's still always been there. I feel like, uh, particularly in horror film, I think there's uh, a lot of studios willing to put money into projects that are maybe considered more refined. You know, all those A24 movies are, are getting a lot of attention. And so I feel like uh, quieter horror has sort of like really started to be a, a moneymaker and it's getting a lot of critically good critical acclaim and, and recognition in a way that I, I think horror hasn't always received. Uh, Get Out, right? Was that like the first horror movie to ever be nominated for an Oscar for a screenplay, right? Something like that uh, or win. So yeah, I, I feel like maybe maybe uh, critics are having a horror renaissance. It, uh, <laughs> all the same awesome stuff is being made, but finally, but maybe a few more people are recognizing it. All right, uh, we have another question um, for for you as authors. Like, why horror for a genre that's considered niche or peripheral, despite waxing dramatically in popularity in recent years? Why is it important to you, and why is it important to your fans, and what makes it more essential than what might be considered a mainstream genre? I just that's a lot like to it. take that's, in. <laughs> that's the way I'm bent. Um, it's what I enjoy. It's what I've enjoyed since I was little. It's what I have the most fun with as a writer. And like Cody said earlier, it's like I'm not doing it for the money. <laughs> I'm I'm in it for the fun. And if the fun happens to involve a lot of war and, and violence and terrible things, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, horror is like this. <sighs> You know, there, there are so many horrible things that can happen to you in this world. And horror is like this great way to like rehearse for it, you know? And and my brain just wants that. I'm, I'm an anxious person. I'm always like, what would I do if this terrible thing happened? What would I do if my car went off, you know, the road into this river? What would I do if somebody broke into my house and started trying to kill me? You know, that sort of thing. And Horror is like the genre where where they don't flinch away from that. They say, yep, terrible things happen. It's true. And and I I just love the fact that horror is so unflinching. And I think I think we need it sometimes. Also, sometimes horror, like monsters and stuff like that, is significantly less scary than the actual world. Like I I love monsters. They are so much more fun than climate change. <laughs> Cody's going to talk. Anyone else? Um, well, I think I mean uh, 
uh, I don't know if, how many of you know J.G. Ballard, um, but uh, it, similar uh, impact on uh, mm-hmm. on science fiction as Lovecraft had on horror. But uh, he once claimed that uh, science fiction was the literature of the 20th century because um, <laughs> after World War II, uh, change had happened so much. And human psychology was still trying to trying to kind of catch up, and there was this tendency to kind of fetishize technology. Uh, I, I think horror uh, is uh, kind of the literature of the 21st century. I think, in terms of, or in terms of uh, how it how it defines the way that we feel. Um, I, I hate when people predict that you know it's a it, it, it's a renaissance that that's for history to say. But you look at looking at the history of horror, there are so many periods where like in this in the 60s and 70s, when the gothic universal kind of uh, kind of tropes were completely worn out and 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 hokey and only the cheapest films and, and, and novels were still kind of trying to trade on those. And there was a need for something new. And suddenly there was a there was an evolutionary snap. And horror became very savvy and modern about the about the modern world and what we're afraid of and how we respond to it. And uh, generationally, we're we're reaching a point where the the kind of what we've taken as horror, which is something produced by only three people uh, in the world, uh, is is changing, and and new faces and new voices are creating it. And uh, it's it's finding its way into new, into in a media at a time when uh, consuming media is seems to be our primary job and our national pastime. Uh, so I, I think there is kind of a, a horror renaissance. What's fascinating is how it deals with the question of uncertainty. Because in the past, horror has usually benefited from things being good when we kind of believe they shouldn't be. Like the 50s, the 80s, where we were very isolationist living a very high standard of living, but usually at somebody else's expense. Uh, and, and so horror, the horror produced by and the popularity of horror during times of genuine global uncertainty, uh, it's, it, it's, it's terrifying as a human being and as a citizen, but it's kind of fascinating as an artist. Interesting. So there's a good follow-up to that. Um, how do you think the weird fiction genre informs the modern horror of our current era and what sets it apart from the literary horror of previous decades? Good question. like, I didn't know there was going to be Sorry, I'm trying to move where there's a better where there's a better signal there's and where I can see that. That's no, nope, not there, up. Cody. <laughs> Keep moving. <laughs> no. God. Well, well I, let, I think I think that let's just else talk. How about that? That would be a good solution too. <laughs> <laughs> that part of it is especially now that we we live in the information age and we think now more than ever in human history that we know everything and we control everything i think weird cosmic fiction is what we need to remind us that we're only looking at the top of the ocean and the ocean is mighty deep there's all sorts of stuff down there that you know, we, we have not yet found. And it's really arrogant of us to think that we do know it all and that we can control it all because we can't. 
because even even now look around you know we we've got this this pandemic happening and we can't control it because people are you know they're 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 so convinced of their own invulnerability and immortality i don't know it's like that's a cosmic horror right there someone else jump in and help before i start <laughs> well we're anyone talking, else have thoughts on this we're talking a little bit about genre categories and overlap and things like that and what how weird fiction is different and to me um you know these things there there is always so much overlap that it's really uh hard to say this is the clear dividing line between horror or literary horror or weird fiction um you know you could definitely make arguments and say i assert that weird fiction is uh is different in this way where the story starts off in a world that feels more rational and it changes and things sort of disintegrate um or that literary horror is like horror but it's just quieter and it's more about the people and it's more about the psychology and less about you know violence or extremity or blood um but but there are so many exceptions to all these things it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to talk about those those um those borders because so many times there's something that could really easily qualify for two or three different um categories it's, it's tough um without without having a specific story to talk about do you think we're going to see more um you know weird fiction things that are things that can be classified as weird fiction coming coming out to the forefront and being pushed forward for mass consumption well i'm thinking of like color out of space just came out and made a yeah. kind of a big splash because nicolas cage was in it and um you know annihilation um but on the other hand annihilation was like a netflix release because they didn't think it was going to do well in theaters well i mean a lot of the people that we know that we've bumped elbows with at conventions have movie deals you know they have movies that are being made of their books so uh, you know netflix shows or hulu shows you know nathan ballinger who's got it had a movie made and is now going to have a hulu series and paul tremblay has movies being made and larry baron had a movie i mean a lot of uh there certainly is are signs at least that um some people have uh, media creators have decided that this is a a little a little niche that is ripe for making into motion picture entertainment um whether that's become because it's become successful in some ways or or what i don't know um but there definitely yeah there are lots of signs that there's going to be a lot more of it i also think there will be um you know we're we're starting to see a lot more fiction um making it across the us's borders from other countries other continents you know there's been um you know like like Nigeria has i think it's called Anathema it's a science fiction magazine coming out of there and that is something that you know we've never had access to Nigerian writing before it hasn't been easily accessible to us and now you have writers coming out there and editors who are now promoting their work in the United States and we're we're getting like we're getting new flavors of fiction um because publishing is sort of like absorbing forces from voices that before were were so marginalized i mean it, when lovecraft was writing there were very very few trans writers i mean actually the one of the first novelists published from oregon was one of the first trans writers uh he's a doctor from my hometown. Anyway, but you know, Lovecraft certainly didn't know there were, you know, people who were changing their bodies to better match their internal gender. 
And now that's, you know, extremely common. There are lots of trans writers. There are lots of writers who are saying, hey, I'm intersex and this is my story and this is my take on horror. And I think they might not be weird, capital W, but their stories are still weird compared to the white bread American horror experience that has like dominated like you know the 80s horror thing so even if we're not talking about weird with a w i think we are seeing new kinds of stories that are going to give us like a whole new realm of, of horror to dabble in exciting <laughs> yeah yeah i think so um and on that note um uh, we have gone over time uh, we've been given a little time because there's nothing after us but we should probably wrap this up um, and I just want to thank all of you for being on this panel. And I want to thank all the, the people watching for, for being here and asking such great questions. Um, and thanks to Mary Kelly and the Hillsbury Public, Hillsboro Public Library um, for hosting the local author's fair and having us be a part of it. Really appreciate it. Um, just, I guess, uh, on that note, um, Christine, people can follow you on your Facebook and Twitter. And WordPress. And WordPress. Um, Wendy, people can find you on your, you have a website. Yeah, I've got winniewoohoo.com. <laughs> and I'm also on Twitter at WN Wagner. And uh, on Facebook, I think it's Wendy N. Wagner. Okay. And Mike, you are also on Facebook and Twitter and griffinwords.wordpress.com. Yeah. Words is my blog and it links to the other, you know, social media stuff. Okay. And Cody, you are also um, on all the social medias as Cody Goodfellow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, CodyGoodfellow.com. Can you guys hear me still? Yeah, no. Okay. Um, and Twitter is HPLFF and um, Instagram is HPL Film Festival and uh, you can find out more about the festival at hpllff.com. We have an event coming up this Saturday, August 22nd. Um, it's streaming, and it's kind of a, a celebration of 130 years of Lovecraft, of H.P. Lovecraft. And it's going to be sort of a look back at the 25 years of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, which was started kind of as a, a platform for artists and filmmakers to, to encourage them to create more work um, inspired by Lovecraft's fiction and adapted from it. And over the years, it's kind of morphed into this place for anyone dabbling in cosmic horror and weird fiction and bizarro fiction to come and, you know, show their movies and do re author readings and talk about, talk about the, the weird horror that we've just talked about. Um, so we're going to be showing a handful of classics from the genre from, there's like one from 19... 99 and like from the early 2000s and some more recent and then we have a sneak preview of what we'll be showing at the main festival which is coming up in october so october 2nd to the 4th so those tickets are available through the hollywood theater website um, it's geo restricted to the usa right now and we're working on um maybe trying to expand that to canada but we're we can't do that until we get permissions from all the filmmakers. Um, but if you want to find out more about that, it's on hpllff.com. So thank you, thank you so much. I don't know if Mary needs to come back and wrap this up or Mr. Hey guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back in for a second. 
Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this amazing panel. Thank you to all of our fabulous um, authors who shared their stories with us. We're so grateful you guys could be here with us. And um, we look forward to seeing all of your work and the Lovecraft festivals in the future. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Before we wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a minute to say thank you for tuning in. We hope you're enjoying the podcast from our interviews and actual plays to our rambling roundtable discussions. If you like what you're here and you'd like to support the show, we have great sponsors for you to check out. Birds of a Feather Coffee Company is a small batch craft coffee roaster and is our OG sponsor. They have three signature blends to choose from. The Morning Lark, which is a light roast. The Night Owl Blend, which is a rich dark roast. And the Hummingbird Decaf Blend. They also have the exclusive Legendary Brew, a nice medium roast coffee, perfect fuel for all those late night gaming sessions. If you use the code LEGENDS10, you'll get 10% off your order, and shipping is always free. So head on over to tinyurl.com forward slash Legendary Brew, or click on the link in the show notes. Thanks everybody for checking it out. We'll catch you next time. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.